0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar guest episode, Thanksgiving week, hoping you're going to enjoy this one. It is with someone who has become a dear friend, on top of being a pretty amazing storyteller, uh, raconteur, bon vivant, dude that's done a lot of amazing things, and who has a rather amazing memory. That's Willie T. Ribbs. Ah. Uh, Always, always fun when I can spend some time in person or on the phone with my brother, Willie. Looking back here on his career, looking at Lewis Hamilton and his recent achievement of getting to six Formula One World Championships, talking about Joey Ray, really, if we think about Willie in terms of pioneering being the first African-American to qualify for the Indy 500 in 1991. Fantastic achievement, but Willie's hero, well before him, decades earlier, Joey Ray hailed as truly the pioneer among African-American race car drivers. Someone who unfortunately came up in a time where men of his origination were not welcome at the Speedway, but whose talent in... Separate open wheel championships, the Golden Glory Sweepstakes, for example, just show that this man was was truly an elite talent. Speak about Joey. Speak about Dale Earnhardt Sr. A little bit about Dale Earnhardt Jr. Talk about Dan Gurney, who Willie really drove for. Pretty amazing conversation too. That also included the late and equally amazing Phil Remington Rem. Don King, Willie T's ill-fated attempt to get into the 1985 Indy 500, dancing on the roof of the various GT cars when he got into victory lane, his Formula One test with Brabham, meeting Muhammad Ali. Uh, what else? Oh, and we close with the rivalry with Scott Pruitt. Uh, it's just a typical Willie T conversation. I thought we were going to go for about 40 minutes or so, and because I'm silly, I failed to realize, oh, no, no, it's two of us just gabbing away, so it timed out to about an hour and a half, so hopefully here on this Thanksgiving week where you've got either a drive ahead of you or just really annoying family members, you want to pop in those earbuds and just kind of nod and smile like you're listening to the conversation, but really, hopefully you're here with us. Enjoying a conversation with Willie. That's what we got for you. As always, we say thank you to Cooper Tires for their ongoing support of all that we do here. The Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Just the four, four pillars of what make this podcast possible. Also going to say that with a short week going to do my best to prepare a couple of additional podcasts to put up. Not exactly sure which ones, but going to try and put up a few more in addition to our weekend sports car show and your IndyCar listener Q&A show, which I'm hoping to get filed here. Well, recorded, then filed here shortly. Yeah, filing it right now would be really easy. There is nothing. Good Lord. Uh, what else can I share with you? Uh, so it's been a boring week yet again right Uh, nothing to talk about coming out of last week where seemingly everybody lost their damn mind Uh, a lot of your questions that are coming up here in the listener q a show are about my man our man my french fry the french fry to my hamburger sebastian bordet do my best to fill in a lot of things that you not just have questions about but sneaking suspicions you have about what went down and do my best to not get out the knives, but yeah, boy, it's been floating around for a couple of weeks. Hey, is this something? Is this a thing? And boy, when it was confirmed that it was a thing, hit like a ton of bricks, along with the James Hinchcliffe situation, and also Spencer Piggott, uh, yeah, has not been a great time for those who like consistency and think that you can believe in contracts and handshakes and words. I would say words and handshakes and even signed contracts are at an all-time low. Uh, If they were on the stock market, it would be plummeting. So, yeah, strange time for IndyCar, isn't it? We have the high of highs, I believe, for many, with Roger Penske purchasing IndyCar and IMS. We know that its future will be secure. We know that real businessmen and business women will put their minds to securing the long term future of the sport and the speedway that we love. Could things get any better Oh then you're letting him go? Oh, and despite having a contract you're standing him down. Oh, oh, you told that guy. He's testing the car next week because he's your driver for next year. And now you're going to pay him to not drive. And now he's scrambling to hopefully find money to drive something else. But it looks highly improbable. If you're an IndyCar fan, I would say that you might be pouring in a little something else into your eggnog or whatever it is here at Thanksgiving because emotions have been jerked up, down, sideways, backwards, you name it of late. Highest of highs, lowest of lows, and maybe the most worrying trend is not so much what's going to happen for the rest of the off-season, the silliest of silly seasons. Pretty much everything's in place with the major teams. There's one or two obviously. Carlin Racing has both of its seats to confirm. We have A.J. Foyt Racing with both of its seats to confirm. Not really expecting a lot else if we're talking full-time. Part-time teams, Dragon Speed, Home Coast Racing. A you know, couple areas here where we're not exactly sure what they're going to do for next year. So I don't think we're going to have any more major shooting a hole in the hole and the thing is going to sink kind of events. But what this does do and should do, is for any driver going into 2020 with a contract, not for 20, but for 21, I think we've had a pretty serious blow to the confidence in anyone who holds a contract. So you, driver X, going into this new season here just a few months away, you still have multiple years left on your deal. What if you do not perform up to expectation? What if somebody else with money or more money raises their hand and says, hmm, I'd like to be in that car. I know that you got a contract, but I think I would be, yeah, that's what I want. And team owners saying, oh, all right, yeah, I know I have a piece of paper or a handshake or a verbal, yeah. I think that's the worrying thing to come out of the last couple of weeks if bigger dollars or a fear of not being able to find the money if a new budget deficit has arisen, which is the case of Dale Coin Racing and Sebastian Bourdais, the trigger-happy, panic-button-hitting mindset. That's the thing that again. I think this is going to have some IndyCar drivers on edge, like never before. Think about those who have been in a little bit of a rut the last year or two. We're really hoping next season will be a turnaround for them. What if it isn't? I know they can look back to this off season and say, "Ooh, all right." Uh, I I <laughs> in theory my contract says it shouldn't matter whether i am a champion or not a champion we have come to a legal agreement that i will drive for you for x amount of years beyond 2020 i think we're going to see a lot of drivers no joke this off season if it hasn't already happened spending 500 dollars an hour or whatever their lawyer charges to look through their contracts and say hey are there any avenues for me to get cut if my team doesn't like my performances or whatever it is that might conspire against our greater greater success? There's one other thing, too, to close here before we get into our show with Willie T. Ribs. just stuff to think about in light of all that's happened in recent weeks. IndyCar doesn't have a, quote, players union, the NFL Players Association, the National Basketball Players Association and so on. There is no higher body that interacts with the league or teams to stand up for drivers. Doesn't exist. The corporate structure, the, the business structure of IndyCar also is completely different than any stick and ball sport. If you think of the NFL, NBA, We hear about these purchases. Oh, my goodness. The Los Angeles Clippers were bought by Steve Ballmer for $2 billion. Owned by an individual. Purchased it from that individual. Got it. But that team is part of the NBA's overall business structure. Had to be approved by all the other team owners. You know, this is really an asset that is held by the league and had a situation before with an owner change where the league actually stepped in and, quote, ran the team for a little while until it could find an owner. In that dynamic, you have major company, a business, that owns the franchises. I know it's a topic Michael Andretti mentioned here recently that we wrote about on racer.com, but you have a dynamic where owners and, quote, players... There's a dynamic where there's a mechanism to fix bad behaviors, wrong decisions, and so on. You have a scenario where if a team owner decides that we want to cut this person despite having a guaranteed contract, a no-cut contract, well, the NBA or NFL Players Association can step in and they have real true bargaining power, not just on the legal side, but they truly hold a majority, a union of their players and can say, hey, league, you need to fix this. This team, this team owner is trying to do something that is outside the bounds of this player's contract or go straight to the team and say, nope, not happening. Arbitration happens, some sort of legal review happens. Things tend to get cleaned up and cleared up. In IndyCar, we don't have that. The NTT IndyCar series, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, does not own its teams. These are privately held, privately run businesses. So when a Dale Coyne takes up an option on Sebastian Bourdais and has a (laughs) written-in-stone contract with that driver for 2020 and decides... After losing a free engine lease, that's too big of a budget deficit for my liking. I'm already spending too much to put my team on the grid. I need to let this guy go, let his salary go, save money there, and also go and find someone to pay to drive this car and cover this new bigger financial loss that I'm facing. There's no real recourse. You might say, but isn't there a contract? Again, isn't this something where a board day or whomever could go to court and fight the team, fight the team owner? Yes, and the costs to do so, knowing that there's usually a pretty significant disparity between the wealth and resources of a team owner and a driver It means that most drivers, without a union, without a business structure in IndyCar, where there's true eye-level engagement between the series owners and players association, it means that if a team owner decides, yeah, I know that we have this contract, I know that it is signed, and will stand up in a court of law, but whatever amount of money you might get out of me, That this contract would offer you, you're probably going to pay double or triple or quadruple through running you through the courts for who knows how long. But the bill from your lawyer to do this and the amount of time it's probably going to take to get to the place that you want, you're going to spend multiples of whatever it is I would have owed you. So as a result, Nothing happens. It's, that's where things get dirty. That's where things get ugly. That's where the power being held is such a vacuum on the driver's side. So what do you get? You get a driver who is shocked to learn that they no longer have a full-time seat. And also do not have the, while they do have the power to sue, most likely do not have the financial resources to come out ahead. If you're going to get that, whatever the number is, quarter million, half million, $750,000 salary, great. What's it going to cost you to get that? A million, million and a half, two million. It's a losing fight. So what you get is this rather sticky and unpopular situation where if you are one of the drivers right now, with a contract through 2021, 2022, and you might not perform next year. It's a precedent, a little bit of a worrying precedent that has just taken place that I think a lot of IndyCar drivers, their managers, and their lawyers are going to be looking through those contracts, trying to find the outs, the, the easier outs that team owners might have if they did not already know about their existence. All right, that's a little bit of what's stumbling, fumbling, rumbling, and bumbling through my brain as we head into what I hope is a fun and winding conversation with our man, Willie T. Ribbs, on the weekend in IndyCar guest episode brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Mr. Ribbs always a pleasure when we have you on the show it feels like you're on the show all the time but then i realize it's just you and i talking smack between one another we should record some of that we would have fewer friends than we already do though
1: actually no it'd be the opposite we'd have a lot of friends because (laughs) because dirt and mud would be everywhere it it looked like a mud wrestling contest with a bunch of pigs (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> ah, this is how we're starting the show. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks as always for taking some time, my friend. We're driven by listeners on this little show of ours, and I know you enjoy that as well. So let's just jump right in. Our first one is from Ed Haynes. says, Willie, could you talk about the picture you took recently with Lewis Hamilton and why you said you rank it up there with meeting Muhammad Ali?
1: Well, yeah, it's right there with Muhammad Ali. Ali without question was the greatest uh, uh, heavyweight of all time and, and, and probably the most famous athlete in the world of all time. And you know what Lewis Hamilton has done six world championships and he's still young and he's, you know, he's got easily five years left and you know, his dad, when I met him and his dad in 2012 at the first grand prix in Texas, um, uh, his dad said to me, he says, you are one of the reasons I wanted Lewis to be a race driver. And I, I nearly that floored me. Wow. And It floored me. And uh, when I see Lewis and I see him every year at the Grand Prix, I mean, the only words I have for him is, I'm proud of you and stay tough. Stay tough. Because I know he didn't have to deal with as much as I had to deal with and type opposition, but it's still out there. And, um, you know, he's, he's very resolved, and he is without question, if not the greatest Formula One driver ever, right at the top. He's on that podium of the greatest ever.
0: Do you think he grasps what you mean when you say stay tough? You're not using a lot of words here. But those words contain a lot of history. Do you have any feeling as to whether he grasps what it is you're oh. telling him?
1: Yeah, he does. And, you know, I pretty much every time I see him, I, I say that to him. And, and I'll, I'll qualify that with him by saying, and you know why. You know why you got to be tough. And he, you know, a lot of people say I've been a pioneer in the sport. But what he's done, his he's taken that pioneering uh, trail and, and took it to another planet. And I, I'm just proud of him for his resolve. I mean, without question, I mean, he's he's so talented. And I watch his in-car uh, camera and I can see his hands. And I watch how soft his hands are. A lot of those guys, I remember watching Rossberg, Rosberg looked like a gorilla on some ape hangers, Right. (laughs) And, um, so, uh, uh, and then I watched Hamilton's hands and they were just very soft and very precise. And, you know, if you study that, you can just see that he is so in control of what he's doing and so comfortable, but on the social side, you know what you do in a race car is one thing, but you know the you know the you know he gets arrows shot at him all the time, and that's the reality of it and that's why I say keep that flat jacket on
0: This might be tough to answer, but I know one of your heroes, one of my heroes as well, but one of your supreme heroes as a race car driver, Joey Ray, and I know that he. Is a big. I don't know if he knew it, but he added so much to your 1991 qualifying run at Indianapolis. Being there, for those who don't know Joey Ray's history, maybe you could share a little bit about Joey. But curious, what you would think? How you think Joey, who, if we want to talk about pioneers, <laughs> I mean that he he is that's the man. What do you think he would say about Lewis Hamilton? Do you think you could ever imagine? A no, driver of no. color getting and, as far as he has.
1: You no, know, and unfortunately, Joey died in, I think, 07. I'm, I'm sure it was 2007. He was, you know, and I knew about Joey Ray and how awesome he was, uh, a race driver. Uh, and, you know, he ran a lot of dirt tracks. and uh, You know, the, the speedway was pretty much off limits to him uh, in his era despite how great a driver he was he could have jumped in he could have he would have been in the indy 500 it'd have been a no-brainer if he if he would have been allowed to race in that time or or someone you know would have pushed it if if uh uh tony holman and, and tony holman bought the speedway i think in 1945 but you know if if he would have taken it upon himself to uh triple a and i think triple a was the sanctuary body in those days um that this is what we're gonna do he he could have pushed it through and uh, but uh, joey uh he was a, a really a hero of mine I mean, not just because he's such a great driver but you know because he was just uh awesome human being and, um, he, you know, he was tough. Yeah. He, he was dealing a lot more. It's sort of the era we all go through. You know, you look at the, the timeline from, from the time auto racing really took off. I mean, Formula One, you know, Giuseppe Farina was world champion in 1950. And you watch Formula One then and through Fangio's era and two and Nuvolari and, and, and Jim Clark. And, um, and, and then, you know, of course, uh, right into, uh, Schumacher era and now, uh, Hamilton, we, we, there's changes, not only technical changes for, for the better, but social, social change is actually slower than technical change. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, the, the auto race has become a fine, fine science now. And, and, you know, to, from, Many areas, not just the technical, but the the safety aspect. And so, you know, there's changes. Uh, There there still needs to be a lot of change. I would want to see Roger Penske take the lead. He said he was going to break some glass ceilings. All right, Roger, start start breaking them ceilings now and diversifying uh, IndyCar uh, the way it should be. Formula One is diversified. It's and Formula One is the NFL of all auto racing, and they're diversified. That's what IndyCar needs for it to go anywhere.
0: Let's go to Scott Cole, who asks a question that many asked, and you, Scotts, just because I think I saw it first. It says Willie, where and when can we watch Uppity? Has it been released for wide distribution? So tell, dear folks, where they can see your life story and unfortunately my fat face, uh, coming well, to streaming solutions and otherwise?
1: On January the 7th, and that's about six weeks from now, it will be released. Uppity will be released on uh, chassis.com, dot com. It will be released in January uh, the 7th. And... Um, and stay tuned after that. There's going to be a lot happening after that as well.
0: I think it also is going to reach a lot of other streaming platforms as well. Uh, Everything from Apple to Netflix, there's suggestions it's going to be all over. I don't admit to know all the places, but January 7th, happy. A little curious as to why it's taken so damn blog, but uh, happy nonetheless.
1: Well, I I, I think that you know, I was sort of uh, impatient with uh, Adam Carolla about with it, and and he just said, uh, "Be patient. There's a lot of stuff happening, and you know, it's been out. You know, it's it's been made, and a lot of people have been uh, patient uh, to uh, let it uh, materialize." Well, it's January seventh uh, on chassis.com. It, it will launch. And I and I thank all those who have been patient uh, that have done their pre-orders, and you know, with Ford versus Ferrari coming out, out not coming out, it's out. And uh, I I think the timing of of uh, our launch is uh, perfect.
0: Let's go to Jeff Hildebrand, who says, Willie, who inspired you to become a race car driver?
1: Well, I mean, I I, I was lucky that. You know, my family that my grandfather founded had a very successful uh, plumbing company, and in San Jose, California. Well, my dad, you know, grew, you know, liked racing. He, his buddies were all motorcycle racers, Philly Consilla and Joe Leonard, and 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 so that's where it started. My dad raced motorbikes, uh, a flat track, and then he started racing cars when he got older. And that was my introduction so i was born into it i was my dad was racing before i was born and after i was born uh uh, a lot of people don't know this but when i was three years old joe leonard drove me home from monterey california san Jose, because my dad and his buddies were working all night there on a race at the at the racetrack wow and three years old and joe (laughs) Joe used to remind me when I go to he said, oh, boy, you were in the back seat. You were upset that you, that you had to leave your dad. And he said, you were a pain in the ass the whole ride. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, We'd expect nothing less. Uh, that's brilliant. Let's go to uh, bounce around a variety of, of modern questions and some history looking back and whatnot. So we're just weaving in and out of all that stuff here. Jerry Foltz asks Willie, "What was your biggest hurdle getting an IndyCar ride?
1: Money, money is always the biggest hurdle for a lot of people. You know, I mean, Al Junior, Al, Al had the bed made for him, the the the, the made, and Michael, and a lot of the drivers. You know, some come from very wealthy backgrounds. It was the toughest part, uh, despite." the success i had in the, uh in lower ranks um you know getting getting the the financial support to do it and uh you know it's and and with me it was tougher than some of the other guys not if not all the other guys because i was breaking a barrier i was a pioneer i was unknown
0: mm. let's go to we're we going to go next <clears throat> why don't we go to Jordan Darwin says, Will, you raced in IndyCars at the end of an era of legends. He says, what do you remember about competing against them? What legends treated you the best as you broke into the sport?
1: Well, I, you know, racing is a, is a very hard sport. And, and I mean, not from the driving side, but from the side of, uh, you, you don't really develop a lot of friends in the sport and, and there was, and there's a reason a lot of drivers who become friends with other drivers might lose them. And Bobby Unser of all the older generation drivers of all, everyone of on the planet, Bobby Unser and I are the closest yeah. and I, I, I love him. I love that man. I spent a few days. We, I went, my wife and I flew to Albuquerque about, uh, six no 2 months ago and spent the weekend with him and his wife Lisa and and he just uh is just was always uh, there and he all and he told me he says you know what he said he said you do really he says you're dealing with some bullshit that you shouldn't be having to deal with but you know you just showed them all how tough you are cuz you tough some bitch and and you go out there and 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 just beat them on the racetrack He says, I'm there, I'm behind you. And, you know, and he told me the stories. He told me what he, he, he hears and what I was going to deal with, but he's, he's just the best. I would literally, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, jump in front of a, a a 38 uh, for him. He's that, he means that much to me. And, and, you know, the the drivers I was racing against in that era, the era I was in in IndyCar was the platinum era of IndyCar. It was the greatest era of all time. We had the biggest ratings in, uh, ever in IndyCar when I was there, and Mansell was there, who I raced against in England and Formula Fords, and Fittipaldi was there, and Mario was there, and AJ, that was, he was going into this final twilight of his career and 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 you know al jr and michael it was just indycar was in this country was the biggest it wasn't nascar then it was indycar and uh and and it was just great uh, a great time to be uh, in the presence of uh, great drivers and to be an indie, to make the Indy 500 in those days, boy, you better, you know, you better put some uh, testosterone in them testicles. You better blow <laughs> them up. You better blow them up like a balloon.
0: Ah, let's go to Will McCarty. He says, Willie, since your peak career ran right up to the IRL cart split, he says, was there a ride available for you in the early IRL days? Say the '96 season, was that ever considered? It says, "I think you would no. have been a logical choice in those early days." And I'm I'm recalling something in the IRL, but I'm blanking a little bit.
1: No, I did one IRL race in oh, I think it was '99 at Las Vegas. I, it might have been '99. And um, no, there you know, the unfortunate thing is that the that that split, you know. Uh, really hurt the it hurt IndyCar. That's the worst thing that's happened to IndyCar, and it still has not recovered. And so there was, you know, there was no opportunities at that time. And and you know, money was, you know, the, where it takes sponsors and lots of them.
0: Let's go to Kyle Donnelly. Says Mr. Ribs is slinging a muscle car around the IMS road course an extremely fun thing or the absolute most fun thing? He says, congratulations on finding victory lane there this year, referring to your S V R a fun with Tony Perella.
1: You know, racing, uh, all, all racing's fun. And, you know, when you win, that's the icing on the cake. And. Uh, but driving you know each car uh, has has its own uh, discipline it's like you know it's like uh dancing with uh different types of women some are heavier than others some are taller than you know you're on the dance floor you know uh, slow dancing that is so um you know it it, it, each discipline requires um a different skill set and you know i I was lucky. I raced, uh, I raced on dirt in Wichita, uh, in 1986, uh, in, in some, uh, sportsman's cars, uh, modifieds and it was Bobby, Bobby Allison, myself and Joe Rutman, and Terry Labani, and, and Michael Waltrip. And it was about 10 of us. And, it was a great experience and in fact bobby Allison and i you know we were leading the race back and forth and uh, i ended up finishing third i didn't know how to manage my right rear tire but to win to drive any car that's competitive um whether it's on this on the oval in an indy car or driving the muscle car and and that muscle car has got 950 horsepower Jesus. A lot. That thing's got a lot of grunt, and you know it's vintage. So you know, you know, vintage is, means older, and mean when it's older, it doesn't stop as good.
0: Let's go to. Uh, got a couple themes here on uh, the vintage racing. Going to go to. Want to go to Lance Snyder, who asks, "Just how much fun are you having in general, getting to do this full series with SVRA and having won the championship?" And he also asks about your fondest moment driving for the Big Eagle, Dan Gurney.
1: Well, I think Tony Perella and what he's done uh, with the SBRA is just brilliant. Um, you know, there's, there's not many guys that have that kind of vision. I mean, Bernie Ecclestone, you know, and I'm not comparing Tony with Bernie Ecclestone yet, but you know bernie ecclestone had a great vision for formula one and look at where formula one is now and that's all bernie you know tony perella has turned svra he's turned vintage car racing into into uh more entertainment than it ever i mean it was i wouldn't have considered doing vintage car racing uh 10 years ago i uh, it just was you know if i want to go out and have wine and cheese, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a park, I to do that instead. Then it's become what he's turned it into, especially with the, the V-Rock champion and to be racing uh, against former, you know, champions, whether it's Al Jr. or Bobby Labonte or Bodine or or, or Skinner or Max Pappas um, Davy Jones, the, and it just, in our first year, it was just a great, uh, uh, it was more than I thought it was ever going to be. He's turned it in, and from our very first race in Indy in 2014 to now, he's turned it into a happening, uh, championship. And just by, uh, recreating what I rock was, you know, uh, it, 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 and to win the championship, to win at Indy, I mean, that's no there's no bigger racetrack to win at. Indy is the number one real estate on the planet when it comes to winning. And uh, to win the championship on top of that, just uh, at, at my age of 64, hell, I could be playing bocce ball.
0: Police are coming to get you, by the way. I don't know if you can hear me yeah, in the background.
1: Uh, I, yeah, I've heard it before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, one of the one of the great things about living across from uh, the hospital that we uh, visit frequently is you know there quite often envoys coming in to bring folks there. So,
1: and there was a second question he asked.
0: Yes, uh, Big Eagle. What were, what, uh, Eagle. What's your biggest, your fondest memory of driving for the Big Eagle?
1: The greatest owner I'd ever raced for. The best. The and you know and 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 I and that doesn't diminish all the other. Uh, uh uh racing owners I race for, but Bernie was different than all of them and i mean uh on another how so how
0: so front. what are some of the uh examples folks might or not might not know about
1: well, Dan was a very he he wasn't he was not one of those owners that would get on the radio and say you need to go faster, you need to do this he had the smoothest voice. On the rate, very, very. Uh, he w- and not a lot of words. He would tell you, uh, "This is where you're at," and uh, and and don't do anything different, and just smooth. And and then out of the car, you know, working uh, in the in the uh, conference room with him and the engineers and Phil Remington. That was another legend, Phil Remington he walks on water and to be, um, in there, what you, you learn so much, but Dan, but Dan would, you know, Dan would test you because if you ask for something, he wants to know, well, why do you want that? Mm. So, yeah. Oh yeah. No, he just didn't roll over like a chihuahua. I mean, he would, you know, okay. What, what, what do you want and riverside when i first tested the the gto car at riverside the
0: turbo the toyota had, the toyota
1: toyota celica my first drive was at riverside and we were testing out there and when the day was over i asked him i said um i said dan i said what's the what's the bar spring combination on this thing he says well we're running uh we're running um a soft bar and heavier springs, and, and I and I didn't like it. I, I you know, especially uh, going through the S's. I mean, the switchback. I mean, thing you had to wait on it,
0: falling all over the place.
1: Yeah, it was falling all over, and you know, would lay down and snap sideways. So, at the end of the day, I said, uh, "We're in the conference room." I said, um, "This is what I'd like," and then he <laughs> raised his head up. And pulled his glasses down. <laughs> and he said, Well, what would you like? I said, I want a whole different configuration, front and rear. I said, I want heavier front bar, I want I want softer springs, both front and rear. I want a heavier bar on the back, I want a heavier bar on the front, and I and I want two hundred pound softer springs on the rear. And they looked at me, him and Remington looked at me like <laughs> I, this is my first day on the job. <laughs> they looked to me like, man, you know. <laughs> and so, so he says, why do you want that? So I told him my theory behind it and what I liked in a car. So they made it for me. We went out the next time testing, and we were two seconds quicker. Just like that. And then we went to the next race and won. So And then we ended up winning the Manufacturers Championship against Ford and Chevy that year. And uh, a couple of times, you know, after a while, I'd ask Dan, you know, well, what do you want for a gear? And I said, well, I want I want a shorter gear. Well, you know, you got to, you know, I said, let my foot be the rev limiter. Yeah, Let my foot be traction control. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and he and he and he like and he always pulled his glasses down and when he give you he looked down under those glasses at you and it was just it was he was just awesome to work with awesome even when I was banging cars because him and Remington you know my first two or three races during practice I was actually banging you know sort of leaving. Uh, rubber marks on defenders and all that and so after the third race Remington I could see uh, Dan and Rim talking and they were like holding their hands over their mouth and mumbling looking down at where the damage was so they just Dan walks over to me with Rim and says um, oh, how did you get those marks on there? I said well you know I was just out there just setting the stage for the for the race <laughs> <laughs> he says setting the stage what do you mean he says well i just want to let 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 everybody know you know my competitors that we're gonna it, you know we could get you know bump some shoulders so then he says now i just want to say he says back in my day he says we couldn't do that he says we drivers died every weekend he says you're good enough but you don't have to muscle mostly your way around here and just lean on people just because it's fun. <laughs> and so, um, and, and because they were, you know, rim likes his cars, you know, clean. I'm you know, and, it. And, it, immaculate. That's, and, um, you know, I was in a little bit more of guerrilla warfare. And so after that, I thought what Dan said and I didn't uh, lean on anybody.
0: Did that go over well? Did that did that res- get the kind of response you're hoping for from them? Or uh, oh yeah,
1: no, no, they were happy. Oh yeah, they you know uh, the other drivers were happy too. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I I just sometimes I get in the mood where you know I just want to uh, uh, bang door door handles, going down the back straight just for the fun of it. You know, look over and you know give a smile and a thumbs up.
0: I love it. I just love it. Let's get into uh, a couple questions here that you, you are uniquely qualified to answer. This first one's from Arvind Mahadevan who says, what does IndyCar need to do to encourage more African-Americans to compete in the sport?
1: Well, I, I first of all, I, I think, uh, IndyCar and Roger Penske need to go out and, and, uh, do a little, um, little searching and, and, and bring, more, uh, bring more minority participation in the sport in the way of Tyler Perry, for example, uh, LeBron James. Get on the phone and get them in the sport. And, and at the same time, you know, it's really not rocket scientists or science. It's not rocket science at all. And the reason I say that, is Ron Dennis has got the playbook for bringing a driver of color into the sport. Ron Dennis who owned McLaren. He saw Lewis Hamilton as a, a young go karter thought he had a lot of talent. His dad only had so much money. Lewis's dad, Anthony had only so much money to take Lewis so far. Uh, Ron Dennis did the rest. Ron Dennis deserves more credit for Lewis success than he's getting. Mm. And I said that to Ron, I said, I said, Ron, I said, people need to know what you did. And, 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 and and it, it just, what you did does not happen. And he groomed, he put his money into Lewis Hamilton, groomed him right through the, through the levels right to formula one and lewis made uh, ron dennis a world champion with mclaren just like senna did and it, that's what it's going to take it's going to take somebody like uh a ganassi or, or 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 roger uh or and or some of the big team owners uh, uh lanagan newman uh, Lanigan,
0: uh, ray hall
1: ray hall Lanigan. Um, that's going to take, we spot somebody that they think they can groom and bring them along just like Ron Dennis, just call up Ron Dennis guys, and he'll tell you how to do it.
0: Here's a fun topic. We went into in depth. Good Lord, Willie, what was that almost 10 years ago when we did that, uh, multi part feature, um, this comes from Derek Patai, who says, could you ask Willie about his IMS test in 1985 with Sherman Armstrong? I think we have officially opened up a can of worms right here, but it's a pretty amazing tale. Why don't you, uh, for those who aren't aware that before your qualifying run, making the show at Indy in 1991, you tried to get there earlier, and it did not work out. Where should we start on the uh, 1985 effort?
1: Well, I got a call uh, at the end of 1984. uh, uh, Don King, I was racing at Caesars Palace um, in a Trans Am race. And when the race was over, a guy came up to me. I had just got out of the car and said to me, I'd like um, I'd like uh, well Don King would like to meet you he says and he's at the Riviera and I knew there was a big fight in town and Larry Holmes was fighting Bone Crusher Smith and uh, so I said yeah when does he want he well he would like to meet you and would you come to the Riviera about 6 o'clock I said yeah I'll do that so I went and met Don King at the Riviera and he said that he wanted to um promote me and, and, manage and do some management work. So I said, well, let's talk, you know, let's discuss it, you know, uh, when things cool down. And so we talked a couple of times on the phone, went out and met him about a month later, uh, for another fight and he had a contract there and, you know, the contract, <laughs> you know, we, I, I told Don, I said, Don, you know, I can read and write, you know,
0: and I can comprehend. <laughs> and so what, what you had said when we discussed this in the past is that it was clear from the contract that he and his lawyer put in front of you this was just the racing equivalent of the type of contract he put in front of boxers where he's been sued countless times for just taking advantage of folks who were not fortunate to have been raised in a household like yours where intelligence was valued over almost everything.
1: Well, yeah, it was it uh, it was really I I, I just thought it was funny. And they looked at me when I I just sort of glossed over it. I said, okay, And so, you know, we sent back the contract with X's full uh, half the contract. No more than that. Ninety percent of the contract was X completely out. And so then we kept working on it. Well, finally, we got something that made sense. And Don called his buddy at Miller Brewing Company and said, uh, "Who does who puts a lot of money into Don's fights?" He says, uh, "I want to put Willie T at Indy." And so we. That was in April, and uh, so we. I don't know who found the team, but uh, word has it that. Uh, Oh a guy named Sherman Armstrong found out after the announcement that Willie T wanted to do indie and so he contacted uh don king and we put a we put a car uh they hastily put a car together and it was it it just was rushed together and the and not just that the there was a guy the crew chief was named, Big Naughty sort of oversaw everything, but the crew chief was a guy named, I think Paul Leffler. Paul Leffler was his name. And uh, I didn't like him. He didn't like me. When I got there, he never said anything to me. And uh, I knew it was a disaster. And uh, uh, when I walked away from that, I was crucified. When I walked away and I decided I don't want to I don't want to uh, run with this guy. And, uh, and I was advised not to run, uh, you know, from some people uh, that were very close to me in the sport. Uh, I was crucified by the media and uh, for not doing it. As if Juan Fangio, when he came here, turned it down. And a lot of other Formula One drivers who had come here, they turned it down, but they weren't crucified as a chicken the way I was and I haven't forgotten it and I'm going to ride everyone's rectum every time I get a chance when that 85 is mentioned uh, it was it was really uh, I didn't think I would ever be back to Indy after that mm. and, I, and uh, those are some wounds that have not healed
0: the Leftler angle, I know, was one that seemed to, that also raised some lasting fears and concerns as to whether you would ever be not physically welcomed, but welcomed with quality, the quality ride.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I just felt that um, it, it, I, he made it clear that he didn't want to be doing that and uh he didn't want to be working with me and uh I was not his kind of guy. I don't know if he was carrying a card in his in his back pocket, but it sure felt like it. Mm.
0: Let's go to Jeff Markowski says, Willie, what inspired you to start dancing on the roof of your IMSA and Trans Am cars? after a win
1: you know what i I, i'm glad he asked that question because i hadn't done that uh since 1988 on top of dan gurney's toyota at delmar and i could do it good then (laughs) i did it at indy this year after the the race after the v-rock race that i won I couldn't, I could hardly get up on the car. And then, and then I, my legs locked up after the third shuffle, they just stopped. And I thought, man, this does not look good. So I, I got off the car uh, gent- gracefully and gently. And that was it. But what, you know, there's a certain feeling that every race driver has. And I don't know how others felt some, Some are more, uh, you know, exuberant than others. Some have more expression than others. Um, I really thought it was, I enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed racing. I enjoyed uh, people there watching. I wanted, you know, I I loved putting on a show. And uh, when I won, I just thought, you know what? I, I, I don't want to just get out of the car. I want to get out and show some excitement. And, you know, I was never scripted. Never. And, uh, you know, I I was criticized for that, uh, that, you know, he should be more scripted and he shouldn't be, he should act a certain way. And <laughs> that's, no, I, I, you know, I come from a very successful and independent family and i'm going to handle it the way i want to and um when i you know when i got when i won and and ali was a big influence on me of course and that's well documented uh and and he what i say to lewis hamilton every time i see him ali said the same thing to me really same thing when mm, you, mm, you're doing a good job, I'm proud of you, stay tough. That's what Ali would say. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was, uh I, uh, so with that, you know, I, Ali was so important and he gave so much to sports, not just boxing, sports. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take my hero's celebration and I'm going to put it on top of that race car. I'm going to do something that no one did in racing. And now you look at drivers now, they're all getting up on the car. They're not dancing, but they're getting up on the car. So, um, yeah, it was just an, and when I didn't do it, once I started doing it, I did one, I won one race and I didn't get up on the car and the crowd went, they were like, they didn't like it <laughs> get up on the car.
0: I like the idea of winning, not dancing and getting booed. <laughs> What's that? I said, I like the idea of winning a race, not dancing and getting booed for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, I, I was, uh, and so, uh, my mechanic, uh, uh, Ron Perry. I think it was Ron Perry. Ron Perry, and he was a big guy. Ron Perry at Toyota just literally grabbed me and <laughs> lifted me up on the car.
0: Go to Dean Ackerman, Willie, who asks a question about your Formula One test with Brabham. He asks, was there any serious talk of maybe Jim Truman providing you with some sponsorship to help get into Formula One? Or was there anyone other than Bernie Ecclestone giving you that test, serious about trying to get you into F1. And what was that? Was that test in 84 85? 85. 85. December,
1: December of 85. Um, no, you know, Jim was, um, uh, Jim, I to this day, I uh, if it wasn't for Jim Truman, uh, putting me in a Formula Atlantic car, uh, when I got back from England and I, you know, I, I didn't have any, any support. It was his support that got me to uh, look good enough to, to, to for Paul Newman to recommend Budweiser, put me in a trans Am car. But knew, uh, but I knew Jim did not, you know, when you're talking formula one, even in those days was a lot of money and, and, you know, he, it wouldn't make sense, you know, for his, you know, hotel brand that had no, no, uh, no properties in, in Europe uh, to, to spend that kind of money. And, and, and Olivetti at the time, who was Bernie's sponsor, uh, they were spending at that time about 15 million a year, 15 to 20 million at that time. Yeah so um, yeah so it you know and and bernie i i if 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 there would have been some money there olivetti wanted two italian drivers and and i knew they they wanted Patrese, they wanted de Angelis. and uh cuz you know uh olivetti's italian sponsor just like Parmalat was and um you know uh, i uh, there was no way i could uh could you know, it would have, take, it would have taken uh, a multinational U.S. company to uh, put me behind a wheel. Let's
0: go to Jamie Carr, who says, Willie, could you tell us a story about how you met the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali? He also asks, what are the similarities between being a boxer and a race car driver? And for those who don't know, uh, he used to put up them dukes as well before turning that steering wheel. Or while turning that steering wheel as well,
1: yeah, um I met Ali uh actually, I was racing over there in Formula Ford, and a friend of mine british uh press uh called me and he says your 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 hero Muhammad Ali Ali's coming to London and he's going to be promoting his film the greatest uh we'd like to get a picture of you and him um and I said, well, where is he going to be? Well, he's going to be staying at the London Hilton. So I went to the London Hilton. Actually, I got there about midnight and, um, and, uh, I came into London. I lived about 20 miles outside of London and I came into London at midnight and he, he, you know, he, uh, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? And so I went to a jazz club called Ronnie Scott's and I was at this jazz club until three in the morning. And then I went back to the hotel and waited for him because the, the, and they don't do that anymore. But the, the hotel attendant says, I asked, I said, well, when's the champ come out? Does he come out and run? Cause I knew he jogged every morning. She said, Oh yeah, he comes out at six o'clock. And uh, so I waited from about Three in the morning till six a.m. in the lobby for him, and he, sure enough, right at six o'clock, I heard the elevators doors open, a whooshing sound, and I turned around and he came out of the elevator, and it was like, it was one of the, it, I, I, I froze. It was hard to believe that I was looking at Muhammad Ali, and yeah. so he. He walked past me, and I got up and I said, "Hey, champ." He said, mm-hmm. "He just mumbled something." How you doing? And I said, um, I, "I'm. Uh, could I go run jog with you?" No, <laughs> he said no. And I said, "I said, hey, I waited up all night to go run with you." <laughs> and he says, you "And by that time, we were out into the walking through the front entrance." where valet is and he said mm, you shouldn't have done that and i said well i i did that he said okay well, you run behind me and so we got we started running in about five minutes and he, what you doing over here i said well i'm driving race cars you what i said i'm driving race cars <laughs> mm-hmm. there ain't no black boys driving race cars in America, what you doing here? And so I told him what I why I was doing it. And so about fifteen minutes, twenty minutes into the run, said, you ever get scared? I said, you ever you get scared of Joe Frazier? I'll knock you out right here in Hyde Park. <laughs> 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 so. So we kept running, and by then he let me run alongside him. And uh, after the run, we got back to the hotel. We crossed the street. It was in Hyde Park where we were running. And he got in there, and I said, well, thanks. Thank you for letting me run. you." What are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go home. You hungry? I said, well, yes. Come on. And he took me up to his room. And I was with him every day after that for the whole week. He was there <sighs> every day. Oh. When you you come back tomorrow, I want you to go with me to this this theater. We're going to have a reception, and that was it. You and spent then, a week
0: uh, with the with the with the goat. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. At uh, the London Hilton, and uh, when we got back to when you get home. He's the United States to call me. Well, we went out in his Rolls Rolls Royce, and he's got a Rolls Rolls Royce, a convertible Corniche. And he says, "Let's go. I gotta go and, and take these papers to uh, my uh, agent." And so we we um, we get in his car, and he's got the. Top down, and we're driving down. Oh, uh, we were driving down um, not uh, Sunset Boulevard, and um, he says, um you think I could have been a race driver?" I said, "You're pretty big." Oh, oh I, I'm too big. I said, "Would you think I could?" I said, "Yeah. Well, you got the reflexes to do it." Mm. okay, well, they don't pay enough money. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was just a, a great, and what he would do, we'd pull up to the stop signal and he'd have his dark glasses on. And when people drove up next to us at the red light, he'd look over at him and pull his glasses off. And people would just freak out. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, every block. I mean, we had a parade of cars following us.
0: The most famous man in the world.
1: Yep. Wow. So, uh, but in, in in regards to fitness and training, I've always, uh, when I first started racing in England, I you know I made dinner money by doing Friday night fights. They have they have at uh east london they'd have this bars roped off with re- with rope right and uh and uh and, and these uh, guys would come in and you know they'd drink and drink beer and they'd bet on put some gloves on and they'd fight for drinks you know you if you beat me you can you know and they do only do one round right so whoever lost I had to buy a drink well then it started betting money so I it. I said, well, you know, I, I'm not going to drink. I said, I'll take the money instead. That made me, you know, um, made me about 50 pounds every Friday night. <laughs> and 50 pounds would last me a whole week eating dinner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just love, I love the fact that if we think of some of the young American drivers that have gone over to Europe in recent years to try and learn on the the lower rungs of the European open-wheel ladder. Joseph Newgarden's gone over and done that. Connor Daly, I think one of the most recent examples. Colton Herta, right? What was he, 14 years old? Something like that, 15 years old. I don't know if any of them were so short on money that to keep racing or to feed themselves between lower formula races to train and become better and one day get to the top. I don't know if I could picture Joseph Newgarden having to uh, to lace him up and box for dinner. Uh, or young Colton. It's just it's such a beautiful depiction of the time but also the necessity, right? You weren't well, flooded to, with money. Enough
1: money. I had just enough money for the race car and, and so I thought, well, okay, I, and it was just by accident that a buddy of mine went to this pub and, um, you know, I, you know, put, uh, and the guy, and it wasn't fair because most of the guys were way older than me and, you know, they were half of them were, you know, they had drank a few pints of beer. So, you know, they weren't seeing, their eyes weren't that good. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, you know, and their feet weren't, weren't that good either. And so I didn't drink. So I'd go in there and, you know, it. and after about the fourth Friday, they 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 put a stop to it because they thought, oh, okay, this, um, this yanks coming over here, taking our money. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, but it was just a, it was a great experience. And, and I was going to do anything to, you know, Uh, within reason if it it was legal i was going to do it and uh to keep racing
0: next question comes from jeff ashcraft Asked, tell us willie how you met bill cosby and i know someone else also asked if you have kept in touch with him at all knowing that obviously in recent years the bill cosby many of us knew and grew up loving Uh, we've had a very different character revealed
1: um, I didn't really meet Bill. I had won a race. Uh, it was a Trans Am race in uh, 1988 at Sears Point, which is now Sonoma Raceway. And in 88, I was doing both. I was racing uh, Dan's Toyota and IMSA. And then I was doing selective races in Trans Am for
0: uh, Les Lindley. A,
1: less Lindley. So that um, I, that weekend I was off uh, um, off uh, uh, my my um, uh, what, what what do you want to call it? I was my duties with Gurney, I had a weekend off, so Les said, "Would you run the, run my car at Sears Point?" And I said, "Yes." And so I won the race, and that was against the Audis the factory Audis. And I was really happy about that because, you know, Audi was putting millions into their program. And I think Walter roll was racing for him and Hurley Haywood at the time. And, um,
0: I was there. I watched it. Yeah.
1: yeah, I won that race. And, uh, in Lindley's car and Lindley's budget was $250,000 for the, for the season. (laughs) So, um, the next day on Monday, I, I, uh, there's a, a uh a um a sports uh commentator up there by the name of Gary Radnich.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Remember, he's still here. Gary? Oh, he's still um, here. He's still working.
1: Love him to death. Well Radnich and I had did several interviews together. Well on Ra- on Radnich sports final Sunday night, uh they they uh ran a clip of the, me winning Sears Point on the sports final. Well Cosby saw it. And on Monday he called me and that's how that was the intro. In fact, he, I, my number was unlisted. Uh, uh, he called my dad's house. His, his, uh, valet, Cam Cooper called my dad's house. And my dad called me and said, Bill Cosby's trying to reach you. I didn't believe it. I thought it was a prank, you know, and Newman, Newman had called me before with, with pranks like, you know, you've been spotted on a, Denver street corner, bunging a an iguana, and you know, and he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and he and, uh. and he didn't give his real name. He'd give a David Stein or you know, and you've been spotted on this Denver. Do you have any uh, any comment about that? And I said, well, whoever's calling, Denver uh, uh, is a little bit too far north for iguanas. Their asses would freeze. <laughs> <laughs> And and he started laughing and he'd give it away, right? Well, I thought it was a prank. And so my dad says, "They, uh, this guy, they want you to call him. He's in San Francisco. He wants you to call this number at this time. And so I called the number and the guy answered the phone and says, are you looking for the boss? I said, yes. Uh, Mr. Cosby, yes, yes, here he is. So he came on and said uh, first words out of his mouth. Uh, how much money can we make? And I said, well, Mr. Cosby, I said, "Uh, this is not horse racing. Uh, This is a a license to spend a lot of money. Well, I know Paul Newman, and Newman doesn't buy coffee. How is he paying for his race cars? And so I said, well, he's got Texaco, and he's got Kmart. He's got, you know, huge Fortune uh, 500 companies that are paying the bills. Well, that's how I'd like to do it. So um he says, Where are you gonna be in two days? Said, well, I'm gonna be here. He says, Okay, I want you to call my secretary, Miss Helen Keelhan, and she's gonna give you your flight plan for you to come to Vegas if you want to. And I'd like to meet you, and you can tell me how we can do it. And that's exactly what happened. And so in two days I was flew down to Vegas and it was the uh, Vegas Hilton and um uh, I came up to his room and he was there by himself and he fixed me a sandwich and a and a coke and and said he asked me to explain how to how to do it. And I said, Well it's gonna cost some money up front. How much? I said five hundred thousand to just get it to, to, to just start. Okay, well, don't tell anybody I'm spending that kind of money. So that was it. Wow. How about and you? it was and of all the people, of everyone that I met in motorsports, um, owners, sponsors, etc. He was he was his. You didn't need a contract with him. Hmm. You did not. You didn't need to shake hands. When he said he was going to do it, it was done. He did it literally within the the next day. It was done, and Derek Walker was floored because when we went to Derek Walker and I went to Vegas to see him about Indy ninety one, um, he said how much is going to take, and Derek told him, and and when we left Vegas that morning, cause we were up all night with him cause he did a late show and the show wasn't over until midnight. And then we were in his dressing room till about 3. AM the next morning we were heading, I was heading out of town and Derek Walker was heading back to Pennsylvania. And, and, um, I get a call from Derek, uh, on Wednesday. And he says, he, he sent the money. I said, "Yeah, I know." What were you? He says, "No one sends money that fast." Mm. <laughs> Literally, I mean, Derek was stunned. The money was in the bank, and because uh, Derek told him, he says, "Look, you know, we're 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 in. Uh, I think it was February or March when when we. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was after the Daytona twenty four hour." When we met with Cosby and Derek says, well, you know, we, we can't waste time with this. He told Bill, he says, because we got to get find a car and get a crew. And, and Bill sent it right away.
0: What's it been like for you, Willie, knowing how Cosby was such a huge transformational figure in achieving your Indy 500 dream? What's it been like knowing in recent years that there's a whole undercurrent uh, that's obviously changed everyone's view of him? How has that changed your perspective of him as well?
1: you know i I, I had a uh, a relationship with Bill that was strictly involved with racing i didn't I wasn't involved in his personal life at all, and we didn't you know, we talked about the subject and the subject was racing, you know, and I've been to his home in Philadelphia and I've been to uh, his home in LA and, and I've stayed there, but, you know, I, I, I never saw anything like that with Bill. It was always, you know, him and I, or, or one, or his representatives would be there. Um, and I'm going to tell you, I mean, he is, he is paying his, his due. He is doing his time and I'm not going to ever defend what he did, but I'm never going to beat him down because if it wasn't for Bill Cosby, you and I would not be talking right now. That's a fact. Uh, I would have never been in the Indy 500. He did it. He spent his money. He never asked for anything back. And he not just Indy in 91, but, you know, Indy Indy car championship in 93 and 94. Um, So uh, no one else stepped up. I didn't get a call from Roger Pinsky. I didn't get a call from Ganassi. I didn't get a call from Carl Haas. I got a call from him. And he did it no one else did and for that I will always love him
0: that has to be a hard thing to reconcile though I'm sure knowing that he decades before this became known about his the things that he was doing in his personal life but for decades that he held this amazing place untarnished place in your life and I know you and I have had this discussion privately before where bill cosby was like my second father i never met the man but my father introduced me to bill cosby when i was i don't know five or six through his albums going to the local um, library believe it or not to check out a record as old as that sounds and listening to growing up listening to all of his albums and he was just always this voice comedic voice but also just this wise storytelling voice, where I learned so much. And again, he was my father's favorite comedian. And just, again, this person was like an extra extra family member at the dinner table my entire life growing up. And so obviously, again, no personal relationship with him, but it felt like that. And I know for many Americans, at least, they felt that way. And then to have his actions in his personal life and the the acts that he committed, the disgusting things that he did, it's been a strange thing being removed from him having to reconcile those things and go, wow, that pretty much pulls out the roots of something that's been a part of my life since I was genuinely a toddler. can only imagine what it's been like for you to have to reconcile the amazing things that he did that helped you while also knowing that, boy, there's a bigger cloud here that might not involve you, but involves the overall story.
1: Sure it does, and and that's hard, and you know to know you know to, to to know what he did uh, in my career and in my life and not be able to hold my chest out and talk about it.
0: And granted, I mean, we're talking about emotions here. Uh, yeah. The women who actually had to deal with being violated and raped, obviously not just being clear, not saying that any of this emotional reconciliation compares on any level, still a reconciliation though.
1: Sure. And, 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 and he is paying for that and rightfully so. he should, but I hope the justice system holds Harvey, uh, Harvey Weinstein and, and And the others that are out there that that are that have been talked about, I hope they'll they're being held to the same standard as bill cosby i want to, and I'm watching for that I'm watching because there's a laundry list of, of 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 individuals and it's and it's been real quiet cosby I don't know he was used. He was in the news every day and everyone else's, um, uh, crimes or potential crimes have been, uh, it's quiet. I, I, that I, am concerned about.
0: Let's go to something a little lighter. Go to Ryan Nothhefts who says, Willie, my father won a signed helmet of yours for me back in the 1990s at a St. Andrew's school auction says, I'd be happy to return it to you as it's part of your personal history and belongs with you. He says, let me know. Raises a great question. Willie, do you have all of your racing suits and helmets? Do you have the, the ribs memorabilia catalog and collection at home, or, or are you not, not that guy? All
1: of, not all of them, but I, I don't have my blue suit from the 91 Indy 500. Ooh but I have my helmet and, you know, I was, when I was at, uh, at uncle Bobby's house, a couple of months ago in Albuquerque, you know, I, uh, Lisa showed me and my wife, all the, all his suits are all, you know, all these suits over his career. And he's got his helmets, the three helmets that he won Indy with, th- they're in the entryway when you walk into his house and it's on my Facebook, right? I mean, that, those, took a picture of, uh, of his helmets and it was just, and I thought, wow, you know what? I, I didn't give my 91 helmet away. Although my son Theo used it riding his bicycle, you know, (laughs) when he was a kid and put some scratches on it. But, um, Uh, I don't have everything, but I've got a lot. I've got a lot of suits, especially from my IndyCar, uh, season in 93 and 94. And I've got my Toyota, which is really important. Uh, my suits from when I raced with Gurney and I've got my suits, uh, from when I raced, uh, in Trans Am with Budweiser my first year. So, I mean, I don't have it all. But you know, I've got, uh, I've got a lot.
0: Well, I can get you connected here with Ryan uh, if we want to add to the collection here. Let's go uh, get to our last couple of questions, Willie. This one's from Tim Peters. He asks, "Do you shoot competitively with your son Theo?" Tim says he shot at the World English at the Northbrook Club and saw Theo and was hoping he might see you spectating.
1: You know, I when I when Theo was younger and and um and that was a great question i used to shoot uh competitively but um once theo uh, once theo was around 15 or 16 uh i i I realized that he was going to be the number one driver on team. and you know he just naturally and every all the top shooters would say man your son's just he's got a natural form he he, he who who's he working well he's not working with anybody so you know we we uh moved we came to texas in oh six because that we knew that was the only way he was going to be a world-class shooter he could, we lived in california but there wasn't enough competitions and there wasn't enough uh clubs and target setters for him to really become a world-class shooter so we moved out to Texas in 06 and I, I uh, bought a small ranch where I could put a practice grid for him where he'd have his own machines and he could train and wouldn't have to go anywhere. So, you know, he, um, he, he, he missed a lot of school in his high school. one, he, one year, one year funny, he missed 42 days, yeah. but in Texas 42 days. And every time I'd call the principal, I'd call the principal and say, well, as soon as he heard my voice, uh, Mr. Ribbs, where's the deal going this time? I said, well, he's going to Cyprus. Oh, Cyprus, Texas for the weekend? I said, no, Cyprus, the country. <laughs> he said, for how long? I said, two weeks. He says, okay, we'll just tell him to do, and in Texas, sports is big. It, sports is everything in Texas. And, you know, if you're doing sports in Texas, there is a, oh, there's a provision that, it actually counts, right? It, it you, can, you can get credits for it, but, you know, you've got to pass your other subjects. And, you know, he was taking homework on the road with him all over the, you know, he was in England, he was in Cyprus, he was in Dubai. And, um, and, uh, I'm proud of, you know, his accomplishments. He, you know, in his, in his high school years, he was junior national champion. Uh, he won, uh, uh, he's won about eight major championships. Majors, not as a junior, but as, as a pro. So, um, you know, he just keeps keeps doing it, and he's and he's doing real well. And the support he's getting has been terrific.
0: Well, all right, last couple for us here. Charles Hall asks if you can share some memories from your time driving. In the NASCAR Truck Series,
1: not well. I I I, I got a call from Dodge. This was uh, I I'd run the Trans Am series in 2000 for a guy named Frank Chappatini, and we ran almost all the races except for maybe one or two, and uh, it was a privateer. He, you know, he didn't spend a lot of money. I mean, we, we're, we weren't going to compete with general Losey, but we did win the Johnson control triple crown. So that was good. We didn't win the championship. We were the triple crown. And, um, so, um, at the end of trans M season, I got a call from Dodge and Dodge said that they were going to do, uh, a factory truck deal with Bobby Hamilton, who was, uh, in nascar and i knew of bobby hamilton and so they asked me if i was interested and i and i said yeah especially you know the nascar drivers are in nascar because they make a lot of money Mm. they make a lot of money and the money that they put on the table was something that i uh i couldn't was not going to refuse and, and it was just, an it was more experience and, you know, I was at the end of my career anyway. And so I did the deal with Dodge and Bobby Hamilton and uh I would have liked to have done it more than one year. Uh I would have liked to have done it a couple of years because it, you know, it, you, it takes a year just to understand how that game works. It's totally different from IndyCar and everything, any, uh, everything else that I had done. So, um, but one thing that 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 teaches you driving those cars, whether it's uh, whether it's a stock car or, or or a truck, it teaches you to be really smooth. It, you really learn smoothness, and 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 you can you I get it when I see that Mario and Bobby Unser and AJ uh they all started on on bull rings and in dirt tracks and in in my favorite picture of Mario Andretti is him sideways at at Sacramento in in the Viceroy uh midget that's my favorite picture I got it and um and I got a picture on my Facebook page. My The first picture on my page is AJ and Mario at Sacramento, or no, it was Terre Haute, on the dirt. And I'd love to see IndyCar. Do that again, Roger. Uh, do two races. You can do them right at Indy, right? They got that dirt track right in the center. Do two races a year on dirt. With the indie car drivers i uh, it just as uh, just to bring back a little nostalgia and' it's points so uh it would it would be awesome to see, and it would be the fans of that type of uh racing would absolutely go crazy
0: I would love it. I think Robin Mill would have a heart attack because he never thought such a thing would happen again so. That'd be the best. It'd just be the. We don't want to kill Robin, but I like the idea.
1: Yeah, no, it it was great, and 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 and. But but oval, being on the oval, whether it's a truck or a stock car, and I've driven them both. It teaches you how to be smooth. You you just know. It, it teaches you how to use that right foot, and 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 uh lap after lap after lap, I mean, you're not doing it for just a few laps, you know you're doing it for four or five hundred miles and uh and 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 I, I got it as soon as I did it i I understood why Mario was as great and Bobby Unser was as great as an a j and aly they just raced they raced everything, and it only made them better.
0: Two questions to go, my friend. Let's go to John Wilson. He says, could you ask Willie about the Del Mar IMSA GTO race from 1987, that being your back-to-front performance? Also, I should say, one of the great, somewhat early instances of in-car camera just creating a story that really was a rarity at that point in time, where every time they cut to the in-car camera in your work inside that Gurney Toyota Celica GTO Turbo, it was just mesmerizing. So he asks if he could tell a little bit about that, and then he has another question after.
1: Well, in and, and 1987 at Del Mar, I mean, Dan Gurney was was just like a cat on a hot tin roof that weekend. Um, there was the final race of the year. The manufacturing championship was really close. Uh if Ford won, they won the championship. If Chevy won, they won the championship. And if we won, we won. That meaning Toyota. And so Gurney was I oh man, he was he was just all over the place. We you know, you needed we needed to give him a uh of uh a a violent <laughs> so, sedative. Man, we, you know, sedative, man. I mean, he was like a he was like a racehorse before a race, and um, so and I I would look at him and I would I would grab his arm and said, "We're going to get this handled," you know. And he was edgy as hell. So anyway, the race started, and I don't forget where I qualified. I, but I was at the front. Well, Chris Cord and I were teammates. And I went down, I, I think Chris was on the inside and I was on the outside going in the first corner and we touched wheels, touch front wheels. Well, when we touched wheels, it knocked the, the stem, my, the valve stem off
0: the wheel and
1: uh, off the wheel. And, uh, Oh, about two or three corners later, I could feel that front, the left front, no, the right front. I could feel the right front, uh going down and so cars were going by me and I limped into the pits and um and I told them uh on the way in I said I got a right front uh so uh, have it ready when I get there and um they put it on and you know we we came uh, what what I was hoping for was a caution and I never got a caution and I knew if I was I had a caution, I would have a chance to win. If I didn't have a caution, I might get to the podium and I got to the podium, but it was, uh, and it wasn't until that in-car camera that you mentioned that I realized how much I was shifting. It was over a thousand shifts in in the race for one hour, one hour, one, over a thousand shifts uh, at Del Mar. So, you know, you uh, uh, you don't think about it until you watch the end car, and you know, and and watch how hard you're working on that box,
0: and looking at you rowing through the gears over and over again. That was just it was fascinating. Again, it just truly fascinating. And if you want to know a sign of how beloved. Your 1987 Del Mar in-car footage happens to be Alex Gurney, Dan's son. Alex and I spent years trying to find that just so that he and I could watch it and <laughs> just marvel at it. And I know that, you know, it's on YouTube and whatnot, kind of lower grade, lower resolution. But we were looking for, you know, he said he believed that they still had the original footage of that. So we we're trying to find that and actually found something a little bit recently that ended out working out fairly well. But I love the fact that the Big Eagles' son was just truly spending years trying to find the footage because it's so amazing. John also asks, says, besides Del Mar, what's the win that you cherish most from your entire career?
1: I I um, I, I don't know. It was probably... And I, I really, probably my first Trans Am win, which was in Portland in 1983. Um, yeah. Was that the Atlee? That was the Atlee. That was my first Trans Am win. And that was, that was really special because I mean, I had come from, you know, and I was struggling. I was struggling to survive you know, coming from England and winning a championship in England and then doing hit and miss Formal Atlantic races, uh, that Jim Truman was, uh, sponsoring me with Red Roof Fins. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, I had some real battles. That one wasn't a battle. It was memorable because it was my first Trans Am win, but probably, you know, um, the, the, Probably Daytona was for Daytona uh, Paul Revere 250 because we were banging on each other now. And I like, you know, just depending on my mood, some, sometimes I like to get in there and and I, I like to have the driver. We bang each other, you know, and it just it makes you know you are really racing. And <laughs> my uh Bobby Unser's wife, Lisa, when we were there, she says, Willie, she says, you're so much like your uncle Bobby. She says, "You," she says, you two are almost two peas in a pod. You guys talk the same. You like the same things. You like the same kind of racing. And, and I like that, you know, okay, You know, not all that. You couldn't do it in an Indy car or open wheel car. You can't do it. You're, you you know, you're out and, you know, um, Leclerc and Vettel proved that in at Brazil not too long ago you, know, you, you can't carve each other up uh in open wheel car because you know one's out or or both you're out but uh you know with with those you know with those fenders you know you can you can make it exciting for the fans but you know there's a limit to everything you know you don't you know you lean on each other but but there's ways of leaning on each other that you can keep racing. And one of the greatest to do that ever was Dale Earnhardt senior mm. ever, ever. He could, he could lean on you. And, 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 uh, and I watched him at Michigan. I watched him go in between two guys going into turn three at Michigan through the center. And he literally, he was, he literally hit them both. Okay. <laughs> He, he w- went in between them and they were, it was three wide. He was in the center and he s- sort of put his quarter panel into the side of one car and bounced back and it knocked it, the other quarter panel into the inside guy. It was awesome to watch. And uh, they got all three of them got around the corner, but he hit two guys in the center of, of, of one corner. Crazy. Just it was crazy. awesome to watch. It was just awesome to watch.
0: Did you ever get to meet or get to know Earnhardt Sr. at all?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was always, he was a great human being. and Because
0: uh, I know the, uh, the link of, you know, what happened from back in the day, but just in terms of actually oh, hey, know, getting to know one another.
1: We weren't. I, you 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 know everybody was focused on 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 doing their thing and and be, and winning. We weren't you know uh, boon coon buddies, but when we saw each other, we he, we always talked. He was just he was a good. Uh, the hardest thing I and and I got to tell you, um, I, I probably three drivers affected me the most when they lost their life, and Ronnie Peterson was the first one. Um, cause he was always, I met him when I was in England and he was really nice to me and probably Ronnie Peterson and then Senna and then Earnhardt senior. Those were the three hardest to swallow. And, uh, I saw, I literally saw Dale Thursday night cause I was doing the truck race and I had, um, saw him Thursday night after qualifying cause I, I had qualified third, for the race and i was coming out of the press room thursday night and because uh, the race the truck race was on friday and i saw him and we talked and he said great job in that truck and he's and i said look i said i'm gonna need you uh for all the advice i can get and he says you got me and um and then i flew home on Saturday after the truck race, I flew truck race was Friday night. I flew home on Saturday and on Sunday he lost his life. That was hard Mm. because he was good. And I see why his son is such a good human being. Dale jr. Well, he had a dad named Dale senior who raised him and Dale jr. I, 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 I I do a barroom brawl. I'd fight for that kid in a heartbeat.
0: Let's go to the last question from a friend of mine tom schreier he says awesome guest mr ribs he says can you talk a little bit about the rivalry you had with scott pruitt during the trans am and IMSA days tom says i was stationed overseas so most of what i know was from magazines her newspapers and more recently youtube videos so let's talk about General, two guys from the same general area within two, three hours of each other. You from San Jose at the bottom of the Bay Area. Scott, not my brother, Pruitt, from a little bit north near Sacramento. Two Northern California guys, very talented, got your starts in open wheel racing, made your way into GT-style racing, IMSA and Trans Am. What was it that just turned you guys into a oil and water because you certainly didn't mix
1: well when when Pruitt came on the scene and I think that was 1986 I had just finished um I had had a great year in Trans Am in 1985 I won the majority of the races um and I didn't win the championship I lost it I had four engine failures that that uh kept me from winning it and i lost i think by five t- five ten points i lost the championship by 10 points and i was ready to leave roush and you know roush and i were not like gurney and i at all and um uh roush you know i never had dinner with him uh in the two or three years i raced uh for him but roush didn't hire me ford hired me and uh SV, uh, SVO hired me and they paid my salary and I re- and they also sponsored Roush to run run me and um, so when the season was over I, I left and um, I did a few uh, stock car races in 86 and the team went belly up and then I ended up going to IMSA with a friend of mine by the name of Chuck Looper actually Chuck Looper I work with at Roush and Looper was a brilliant, uh, uh, engineer and he was running the privateer team. And he called me and says, Hey, come run our car, uh, in the 86, uh, Emsa series. And uh, I was in GTO. And, um, so he, he built me, a, a, uh, a, we ran a Ford Thunderbird to start with, and um scott pruett was in the race racing for roush and um uh, i was in a race in this privateer car that was run by chuck looper Uh, brooke freiberger was owner ryan falconer was engine builder and i knew ryan falconer could build some very Good power, and his power was easily as good as Roush's.
0: Another General so, Barrier located person down in Salinas. Yep, right yep, by Laguna yep. Seca.
1: Yep, and uh, so uh, Pruitt and I had an altercation in Miami uh, th- at the last lap of the race, and after that, it was on. And I knew, and I knew pretty much, I knew pretty much that um, Roush. Uh, the way, the way Roush and I's relationship ended I knew that that Pruitt was going to be the guy to go after Willie T for Roush and I knew that and I wasn't Pruitt and I battled I don't think we, we we there wasn't hatred involved but we we definitely uh, we rumbled and, and I knew you know I, I, I really believe Roush was you know twisting his tail you know and uh but that's fine um we put on a show and you know pruitt and i didn't speak for like 20 years and then we ran into each other in saint elmo a couple of years ago uh saint elmo's restaurant in indy and he was sitting there and i i walked i was leaving and i put my hand on his shoulder and i said i said we were some bad cats weren't we and he got up and he turned around we gave each other a hug. And he and I said those were the great days, man. And he said he said those were the great those were the best times. So, uh, but no, no, I got a lot. I got uh, other enemies in the sport that are. Pruitt's not even in the top
0: ten, really. All right, well, let's work down yeah. that list. Come on now. No, uh, that's for another show. Oh Lord! Oh Lord! Yeah. Yeah, Prue's not
1: even in the top ten.
0: <laughs> well, the fact that there was a punch involved between the two of you, what, at Portland, wasn't it, back in the day? And that's yeah, not even yeah, in the top ten?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was Portland. <sighs> and that's when uh, uh, my buddy Bruce Jenner was Bruce Jenner. He was there, him, in, in fact, at the scene. And, uh, in fact, in the film Uppity, for our audience, our see, we're in bringing film, it full
0: circle here. It's almost like that, we know that, what we're doing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And
1: that film is is Jenner talking about that day and uh, it, Caitlyn Jenner. And it you're going to see both Bruce Jenner and Caitlyn Jenner in the film. And you're going to see Bernie Ecclestone. And you're going to see uh, Dan Gray. You're going to see uh, Don King. <laughs> you see a lot of people in the film uh and uh, and and including our host,
0: Mr. Marshall Pruitt. Oh, don't be that! Don't be silly.
1: You did, did no, nah, man. You did a hell of a job. I mean, your your narrations and the way you uh, uh, put together the the narratives was brilliant. It and you told the truth.
0: Well, I did such a good job. No one's asked for me to do more. So that's also a fairly typical thing in my career. There, ribs. Well, my friend, over,
1: yeah, wait, wait do they see it.
0: <laughs> well, I can't wait for folks to see it because it it has been, it's been an interesting thing where there was multiple premieres and showings. And those who've seen it, I believe by and large have had nothing but positive things to say, but it has not until the first week of January here, a couple, six weeks from now, been readily available for folks to consume at home on the go with their mobile device, etc. So it's chassis.com. Uh, good Lord. I'm actually going to do the, the mild sin here of pulling up a page in the middle of the conversation, but just to make sure I have the spelling, right? Um,
1: C H a S S Y.
0: Yep. C H a S S Y.com. January 7th, 2020 uppity will be available. Hope you enjoy it. It's a, I shouldn't say amazing story. It's a once-in-a-lifetime story. There's only one of you, and it is well, befitting Taylor, of you.
1: Scott Bruschetta, Taylor Swift's manager, he saw uh, Tony Perella put it on uh, after the race. And it was sort of a, a beer and popcorn show, about 150 people. And After the show, Scott Bruschetta walked up to me with tears in his eyes, and he says, Wow. Wow. And he says, he says, "Anybody representing you?" Wow. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift's manager. It was. Uh, it was. Yeah, it, my wife cries every time she sees it, and so anyway, it. Um, I. I. I definitely want to get feedback from all, from everyone that sees it that's on, uh, on the show with us, uh, this evening. Uh, just let me know, and let uh, Adam Carolla know.
0: Thanks, as always, for taking some time, my friend. We're going to just right. keep doing these every now and then. Folks love it when you are uh, in front of a microphone telling stories and fortunate to call you friends. So thanks for picking up the phone.
1: All right. My best to everybody.